Ghostly greetings all. My name is Cameron, and in honor of LGBTQIA plus History Month, and of course the spookiest season of the year, I invite you to listen to an expose on how the story of Frankenstein exemplifies the human compulsion for social and individual acceptance. On a particularly rainy night in Geneva, Switzerland, 1816, Mary Shelley decided she would entertain her husband and their companion, Lord Byron, the world-renowned British romantic poet, while they were cemented inside due to the increasingly inclement weather. She, being the daughter of Mary Wollstonecraft herself, seemingly inherited the gift of written composition from her mother. She drew them in close and recounted a story that would eventually become one of the first and most infamous works of science fiction. A gifted scientist and medical student, Victor Frankenstein, is obsessed with the secret of life. After several years of studying natural philosophy and chemistry, he believes that he has uncovered the answer to the creation of life. This infatuation has utterly consumed Victor, so naturally he begins his work in transforming his theory of life into reality. Victor begins to scour the earth for used body parts to give his project a vessel, for this will ultimately define his project's existence. This process of procuring a frame for the embodiment of his work took much longer than expected. It took months, in fact, to reconstruct the human anatomy. His time has come. He has polished his paramount accomplishment. On this erythral night, Victor unveils his design in the protection and sanctuary of his apartment. His creation is brought to life. The being raises its head and begins to slowly rise from the operating table from which he was confined. The character emerges slowly from the dark obscurity. Victor studies his creation and is absolutely mortified. He realizes his experiment is not only not human at all, but he also determines that he had ultimately failed in his attempt to replicate life. Victor promptly loses his mind and runs into the streets, attempting to evade his mistake and the monstrosity that he has constructed. This entity, from whom we call Frankenstein, is overcome with the feelings of resentment and fury from rejection from his creator. It is not his fault that he looks this way, that he acts this way. This vessel that Victor has sealed him in is debilitated and deteriorated. Frankenstein stares out the window of the apartment as Victor runs away. He eventually disappears into the night and Frankenstein is abandoned by his architect. Frankenstein begins to attempt to find companionship. His heart aches for some kind of connection. The world he was brought into is cruel and unforgiving. He wanders the streets and is met with fearful and judgmental people. Frankenstein is beaten and brutalized by mankind. As he wanders the earth in search for a companion, he is met with violence, harassment, and rejection. Animosity boils within Frankenstein, and he begins to think, how dare Victor do this to me? Subject me to this kind of treatment, this dreary and dismal existence, and pretend as if I am the evil that haunts this world. Frankenstein wants to hurt Victor. 
He wants to make him feel the pain that he himself is experiencing and enact revenge against his cruel creator. So he strangles Victor's younger brother, William. Victor discovers the passing of his brother and he breaks. It is not directly revealed to him, but he knows deep down that this is his creation that has done this to him in a sadistic act of vengeance. Victor retreats on vacation to the Swiss Alps in hopes to ease his grief. Frankenstein follows him and confronts him and confesses his murder of William. I will let John Bogdan, a graduate from Vanderbilt University, explain the following events. Exerted from his essay, The Implications of Shelley's Frankenstein on Human Nature and Government. Victor and his creation argue in the Swiss Alps, and the creature exclaims, I am malicious because I am miserable. Am I not shunned and hated by all mankind? The creature goes on to explain how his kind gestures were repaid with beatings and gunshot wounds by the people he tried to serve. Frankenstein begs for understanding. He pleads for Victor to construct a companion equally as grotesque as him to serve as his mate. At first, Victor obliges to Frankenstein's request. He begins forming a new person. However, Victor begins to question the morality of his actions. Victor then destroys his new creation by dumping the remains of the second creature into a lake. Frankenstein is enraged, and Victor evades any consequences from depriving Frankenstein of his potential fulfillment and companionship. All of the solitude, anguish, misery, and rage can finally fade. Frankenstein treads the northernmost ice and evades his callous existence. Mary Shelley's The Modern Prometheus, or Frankenstein, is a story that captures and illustrates the impacts of alienation on the individual. The character of Frankenstein offers this commentary on the dualistic nature of alienation, both social and individual, and the relationship to one another. This idea is explored that self-hatred is linked to this phenomenon of alienation, as well as how alienation and marginalization can harm the individual. An alienation from the self, a product of a lack of self-love, is a cause for alienation from society. I believe that Sparknotes illustrates this point extremely well. The novel presents the idea that alienation from other people is caused at root by alienation from oneself. Victor's father points out the link between self-hatred and alienation. Quote, I know that while you are pleased with yourself, you will think of us with affection, and we shall hear regularly from you. As long as a person feels they have self-worth, they'll maintain contact with others. Frankenstein feels that he is alienated from human society because he looks monstrous. He first recognizes that he is ugly, not through someone else's judgment, but through his own. Quote, the ultimate consequence of alienation is self-destruction. Victor drives himself to death chasing Frankenstein while Frankenstein declares his intention to kill himself. History.com also exemplifies that, serving as the basis for Western horror and the inspiration for numerous movies in the 20th century, 
The book Frankenstein is much more than pop fiction. The story explores the philosophical. This begs the question, what is our infatuation with this story? But the fact is, is that it's not always immediately apparent. However, it feels like we all resonate with this story. And if not resonate with, then exert some type of empathy for Frankenstein. He is simply emphasizing how intrinsic connection, companionship, and acceptance is to the human condition. Especially how not receiving this can lead to an extremely negative self-perception and outcome. Frankenstein explores what exactly it means to be human and exhibit life, that is, possessing connection and endearment. We live in a society, y'all, and it's about high time that we learn the lesson provided to us by the ever more prolific and relatable story of struggle with acceptance and connection with ourselves and others. We need to radiate love to others and grant the same pleasure to ourselves. We need to foster authentic connections with one another and engage in a meaningful way with people that are experiencing ostracization. For if we don't, we deprive them, and ultimately ourselves, of the facet of our condition that truly makes us human. I would also like to draw a parallel between this story and the struggle of acceptance, connection, and alienation with regards to queerness. Rachel Chung explores the connection between the story of Frankenstein and queerness in their essay, Sex and Sexual Violence in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein. Also, real quick as a preface, Chung refers to Victor Frankenstein as Frankenstein and the monster we have previously referred to as Frankenstein as creature and creation. Shelley's text contains infinite iterations of the human condition, but the story has one glaring omission, sex. Frankenstein is engaged to his childhood foster sister, Elizabeth, but we rarely see the two alone together. And these encounters are characterized more by sibling-like affection than by the romance and devotion of two people engaged to be married. Frankenstein himself is especially sterile, almost frigid. His strict rejection of all things sexual speaks to the attitude of the era. However, the deliberate omission of sex and sexuality from Frankenstein's narrative only makes it more present. Sex joins the ranks of unspeakable horrors in the undercurrent of Shelley's text. Most notably, Frankenstein's creature is born with human instincts, sexuality among them. In his wish for a mate, Frankenstein's monster exhibits more pointed human desires than Frankenstein himself. The relationship between Frankenstein and his monster has been the subject of countless interpretations and reimaginings of Shelley's original story, and has taken countless of different forms. Chung goes on to examine Shelley's text, highlighting the language used by Frankenstein in describing his creation, exclaiming that at one point that he is selected his features as beautiful, beautiful, great God. But the beauty the doctor sees in the creature dissipates into disgust, prompting him to reject the being and abandon him. As Chung explains, this rejection stems from sexual repression. In his 2000 play of the same name, Nick Deere focuses on the creature's quest for humanity against Frankenstein's obsession with the empirical. The two men, as they are both represented, struggle for the upper hand in a distinctly masculine, non-sexual relationship. However, many authors have also explored the homoerotic nature of the relationship between Frankenstein and his monster. Scholar Mare Rigby draws on Foucault's 
the history of sexuality to discuss the nature of the forbidden sexuality and queerness in Do Share My Badness, Frankenstein's Queer Gothic. She writes, Gothic fiction tends to conform the view that not only has sex been exploited as the secret, but supposedly forbidden desire, but also that identities and behaviors have actually been produced as more interesting and more subject to the demand for truth than those poised and positioned as sexually normal. This knowledge of the forbidden not only encompasses the secrets of science, but also includes the secrets of sex and sexuality. Frankenstein's anxiety upon being seen by the monster imply a more chronic fear of sex. At Frankenstein's age, it is fair to assume that he has never had a sexual relationship, especially not with Elizabeth, his betrothed. Frankenstein seems to ignore sex altogether, in fact, eschewing it in favor of study. To Frankenstein, sex and family are mutually exclusive with the success and power he seeks. He chooses to pursue power, and he creates a being entirely without the aid of the female body. Frankenstein turns sex and Elizabeth into something unnecessary, frivolous, and low. By Rigby's reading, Frankenstein's anxiety around sex indicates a kind of homosexual panic, common in Gothic literature. Frankenstein can never safely acknowledge his curiosity or even the existence of the male body as a sexual object, which leads him to regard sex itself as panic-inducing. Some regard the acknowledgement of queer undertones in Mary Shelley's Frankenstein as revisionist, or forcing modern-day values and sentiments into classical texts. However, Christopher Schultz expresses why his conclusion is only natural in their article exploring the inherent queer undertones of Mary Shelley's Frankenstein on Lit Reactor. Queerness in Frankenstein isn't a stretch at all when you begin to deconstruct the novel. Think about its basic premise. A mad genius becomes obsessed with creating life with his bare hands and sets about doing so by robbing graves so as to find the choicest body parts. It isn't enough to simply resurrect the dead, however. The being Victor Frankenstein creates must be the perfect specimen of a man. Regardless of your own interpretation on Mary Shelley's Frankenstein and its relation or exemplification of queerness, it's important that we at least emphasize a parallel between this story and something that is increasingly apparent and destigmatized in our own society. The need for acceptance of queer people in society and internally with themselves. On June 5th of 2020, the National Library of Medicine published a study on Springer's Archives of Sexual Behavior. The study was titled, LGBTQ Plus Self-Acceptance and Its Relationship with Minority Stressors and Mental Health, a Systemic Literature Review. The study deduces the following from their findings. Many individuals who identify as lesbian, gay, bisexual, queer, and with other non-heterosexual orientations experience stigma, prejudice, and or discrimination because of their sexuality. According to minority stress and identity development theories, these experiences can contribute to difficulties with self-acceptance of sexuality. Lower self-acceptance is considered a risk factor for adverse mental health outcomes. The current review aims to investigate whether self-acceptance of sexuality is associated with minority stressors or difficulties with mental health in LGBTQ individuals, as well as whether there are differences in self-acceptance between different sexual orientations. 
The results from these cross-sectional studies suggested that lower self-acceptance of sexuality was associated with higher levels of self-reported minority stressors, including a lack of acceptance from friends and family, a lack of disclosure to others, and internalized heterosexism. Lower self-acceptance of sexuality was associated with poor mental health outcomes, including greater global distress, depression symptoms, and lower psychological well-being. Studies also found that LGBTQ individuals had lower self-acceptance compared to heterosexual participants. In summary, the findings of this review tentatively suggest that self-acceptance of sexuality is negatively associated with the presence of some distal stressors, i.e. lack of acceptance by family and friends, proximal stressors, i.e. lack of disclosure to others, and mental health difficulties, i.e. greater global distress and depression and lower psychological well-being. Additionally, on average, individuals identifying as LGBTQ had general lower self-acceptance than heterosexual people. This basic premise is simple. LGBTQ people are less accepted by society and subsequently have less acceptance for themselves when compared to heterosexual people. This stigmatization and shame is present throughout the story of Frankenstein, and this is relatable to us all, especially queer audiences. Frankenstein is typically enamored on Halloween. Halloween particularly is an extremely popular holiday for queer people. Mark Stein, a professor of history at San Francisco State University, explains that as for why LGBTQ people were so drawn to the holiday, I think it picks up on those older traditions that Halloween's a time for transgressing all sorts of social boundaries, Stein said. So it had a particular set of meanings for people who were basically living a straight life and saw Halloween as an opportunity to express their genders and sexualities. NBC News furthers in their article titled, Why Halloween is Gay Christmas to Many LGBTQ Americans that, an extravaganza of the supernatural, all things sweet and larger than life costumes, many LGBTQ Americans like Roberts hail Halloween as gay Christmas. But the contemporary excitement around the supernatural holiday has a long history within the LGBTQ community. The modern phrase gay Christmas actually stems from an earlier queer nickname for the holiday, Bitches Christmas. During the 1950s and 60s, Philadelphia's LGBTQ community celebrated Bitches Christmas by dressing up in drag and partying in the city's gay bars. Since at the time, cross-dressing was prohibited in many cities and states across the country, on Halloween you could wear drag and not get arrested said Michael Bronski, a professor of women and gender studies at Harvard University and author of A Queer History of the United States for Young People. If you wanted to cross-dress because of your identity, on Halloween you were safe to do it. Following the wave of LGBTQ activism and visibility sparked by the 1969 Stonewall riots, where formal revisions of queer Halloween celebrations began popping up in gayborhoods around the country. New York City's Greenwich Village began hosting its annual Halloween parade in 1973. In 1979, a small group of Key West, Florida locals started a 10-day party paradise for adults, Fantasy Fest. And Los Angeles's West Hollywood started its own Halloween parade in 1987. Mary Cherry, a Brooklyn drag queen, furthers that, We have to put on these, not just masks, but shields to protect ourselves from everyday, regular, straight life. Halloween gives queer people a chance to let their freak flag fly. 
On a more serious note, if you or someone you know is ever experiencing difficulty finding acceptance or self-love for themselves, please contact The Trevor Project, the world's largest suicide prevention and mental health organization for lesbian, gay, bisexual, transgender, queer, and questioning young people. They offer immediate support from crisis centers 24-7, 365 days per year, everywhere in the United States. Locate their resources for those in crisis at www.thetrevorproject.org backslash get help. I would just like to thank you all for tuning in to another episode of Adolescent Pedagogy. As always, if you would like to give any feedback, request a future topic, or receive clarification on the content of this episode, please DM me on Instagram at Cameron.a.mun or Twitter at CameronMun1. Wishing you all a spectacularly spooky season.